Welcome to In Conversation, a series of captivating and insightful dialogues with leading writers, artists, and spiritual teachers. In Conversation is a production of Banyan Books and Sound. An oasis in Vancouver since 1970, Banyan is a gathering place of the world's wisdom and healing traditions. Come by for a visit or find us at banyan.com for live events, books, and more. This is Farhan Azrali. I'm honored to be in conversation today with Gabor Mate, a renowned expert in trauma, addiction, and stress, best-selling author and speaker, and someone who beautifully and modestly weaves medical research, insights from his professional practice, as well as his own life experience. Our topic today is the method he developed, Compassionate Inquiry. So this psychotherapeutic method, Compassionate Inquiry, how did you develop it? It arose out of necessity. As a family physician, I was dealing with people with physical illnesses, um, whether it be neurological conditions like multiple sclerosis or autoimmune diseases like Crohn's disease or colitis or chronic fatigue or irritable bowel syndrome or cancer, chronic asthma, or on the other hand, mental health conditions like depression, anxiety, addictions, or childhood developmental issues like ADHD. And um, after some years of practice, it, it was impressed upon me just by my observation that none of these issues, whether physical health or mental health, uh, could be separated from people's life experience and most often their childhood experience and the emotional patterns that they developed all their lives. Mm-hmm. And um, as that realization of the unity of mind and body and, and the inseparability of people's life experience from their health conditions dawned upon me, it became obvious that to help people it wasn't enough just to help with the physical side of things. So if somebody is depressed, it's not enough to give them an antidepressant. Mm-hmm. Uh, if somebody's got rheumatoid arthritis, it's not enough just to give them an anti-inflammatory or something to suppress the, the autoimmune process. You actually have to deal with their emotional lives, mm-hmm. which means spending time and talking with people. Now, Ideally, I would have had people to refer to. So I, I, ideally, I could have sent people to psychotherapists or to psychiatrists to deal with those issues. Because nothing in medical school trains you for that. Mm-hmm. Problem is, on the east side of Vancouver, where I worked, people couldn't afford psychotherapists, for the most part. And uh, the psychiatrists are not trained to do this kind of work at all. They're mostly trained to make diagnoses of illnesses and to t- treat them with medications. But they really don't much learn how to talk with people and especially how to listen to people, with some exceptions, mm-hmm. but I'm talking by and large. Therefore, by default, I began to spend time listening to my patients myself, and at the end of each day I would s- uh, slot a couple of half an hour or hour-long sessions just for people to come in and talk. and. So through that process of, 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 of listening to my patients and talking with them and doing some very inept therapy in the beginning, but inept only in the, in the technical sense, 
the fact that I was listening and interested in people already made a big difference for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, in the process of doing my own therapy, having to deal with all the issues that were besetting me in my 40s and beyond, so my own personal growth, and then for my various books on mind-body health and stress and addiction and ADHD and other issues, I had to do a lot of research. I had to um, absorb and um, um, uh, become familiar with uh, a lot of information. So all that personal work and professional work and research led me then to develop a certain way of looking at things. And from that way of looking at things, I rose this method of asking the right question at the right time, uh, and uh, that's what I ended up calling compassionate inquiry. In response to a request, after people have marched me work at workshops or in therapy with people, uh, they would say, well, could you teach us your method? And I would say, I don't have a method to teach, I just do what I do. Until people kept saying, yeah, I know there's something here that you could teach. And uh, I still wasn't sure whether I had anything to teach or whether it was just something that I knew intuitively how to do. Mm-hmm. Until somebody actually kind of painted me into a corner and said, okay, you got to do this. And I said, okay. And so they set up this two-day session in Toronto, which I was initially hoping that, I was literally hoping that nobody would sign up because uh, then I wouldn't have to, expose my ignorance, uh, but 350 people did sign up with another 100 on the waiting list, therapists and healthcare workers mostly, and so we did it and it was very successful and, and uh, I realized since then that there is something to teach here, there is a method here that people will apply it in their own way according to their own lights, according to their own gifts, and they may have uh, approaches or gifts that are different from mine. But there's something also very objective there that can be taught. And that's what I've came to come to call compassionate inquiry. And what do you feel are the therapeutic or healing benefits of just being present with other people? I mean, you've seen it in your work. Yeah. So you can really speak to it. Well, there's, um, there's a man whose work has taught me a lot. And he says that relationship is therapy. So that, which is very different from the Western idea of therapy. Mm-hmm. Because in the Western idea of therapy, it's more about the insight of the therapist, very often. Mm-hmm. Let alone the psychiatric model, which is about diagnosing somebody and, 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 and uh, having a model of a disease that you're trying to treat. Mm-hmm. Whereas another way to look at it is that inside all of us there's a healing force, there's a healing power, there's a healing capacity, and which is true of all creatures, all organisms actually. It's not infinite. In other words, you can wound people so badly that they'll never recover, physically for example. Mm-hmm. But there's still a healing force inside everybody that attempts to heal. And so then the question is, how do we promote that inner, inner healing process? And the biggest aspect or the most important aspect of the healing process by far is the degree of safety that the individual experiences uh, with you. 
And safety is not a question of whether you're threatening them or not. Mm-hmm. Safety is actually how well connected they feel with you. Because an infant, if you take an infant, and we're all wounded in infancy, and so many other problems we deal with go back to very early in life. Mm-hmm. So for an infant, safety is not a question of the absence of threat. Because in the average home, there's no threat in the sense of saber-toothed tigers or enemies. Mm-hmm. But, but the lack of a threat doesn't make an infant feel safe. For the infant to feel safe, he or she has to be held by the parent. Held not just physically, but emotionally. And it's in that safety that healthy development takes place. It's because of that lack of safety, that lack of being held emotionally, uh, that underlies the source of all trauma and virtually all pathology as far as I'm concerned. Not all pathology, but virtually all. That also means that for that healing developmental force to be encouraged and invited and activated inside the person, they need to be held, they need to feel very safe. So, it's, so when I talk about safety, I'm talking about the connection. When I hear, listen to you talk about safety, I think of, it sounds very close to how I would define love. Um, what's love got to do with all this? Well, uh, I don't have to have loving feelings towards the person. I may or may not, but we're not talking about love on the feeling level. Mm-hmm. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Buddhist teacher, says that to love somebody, you have to understand them. So in this case, love shows up as an unconditional determination to understand that person mm-hmm. so they can understand themselves. And so that means not only do you not judge them, but you also don't allow them to get away with judging themselves. When I say don't let them get away with it, I don't mean that you punish them or you attack them for it, but you point out when they're not being compassionate towards themselves. So it's love in a sense of holding somebody and understanding them, regardless of whether you have an emotion of love or there, or, or not, uh, that's secondary. The primary is the, the, the commitment to holding the space for them unconditionally and, and, and being determined, committed to understanding them, or, or mirroring them in such a way that they can understand themselves. So much of it is about mirroring of, of, of what's actually, what am I seeing? And then, the person can decide for themselves whether they recognize themselves in that mirror or not. And does mirror involve uh, reflecting back the kind of language that people are using so that people become aware of maybe how we use language? Oh, that's an essential part of what I do, is, is, is that I reflect to people the kind of language they use. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm trying to think if I can think of an example right now. Well, I can give you one example. So a woman I saw many years ago for depression, and I asked her what was her relationship with her mom like. At some point, I asked her that. She says, we were this close. Uh, her world revolved around me. Now, 
that unconsciously told me everything I needed to know. Because in the real world, I'm going to ask you, Farah, what is the metaphor from? Like the image of something revolving around something else, where does that come from? Uh, earth and sun. Yeah. And so what revolves around what? Well, the earth revolves around the sun. Yes, yes. You understand that? Yes. So that was, okay. What is the source of heat and light? What is the source of life? The, the sun. Yeah. So when a woman tells me that the mother's world revolves around her, what was she telling me? That her mother relied on her to be the sun and the warmth and the nurture. There was a total reversal of roles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was an unconscious metaphor. And in order to be that for her mother, she had to repress her own needs. She had to push them down. Hence the depression, mm -hmm. which simply means pushing down. So that's the metaphoric example, but it's very clear. Uh, people's language is always revelatory. Uh, Sigmund Freud said <clears throat> that there are no random events in mental life. So sometimes I say to somebody, well, this is the word you use. They say, oh, that was the wrong word. I say, no, that was exactly the right word mm -hmm. to express what was going on inside you deeply. But let's just look at the meaning of it. Mm -hmm. So yes, we do reflect a lot on people's use of language. And, you, you know, your ability to be able to see that is quite remarkable because not everyone would necessarily be able to have that insight. So how do you um, help people gain the ability to interpret what people say in a way that can help, is insightful in that way? Well, the, it helps that I used to be an English teacher, so I, I really like language and, and the meaning of, of words. But... But as, a, but as a method, it's not that difficult because as soon as somebody uses a metaphor, you can say, well, what is the actual source of that metaphor? And they'll tell you everything about the meaning of it. Mm -hmm. So that thing about the earth and the sun is, doesn't take a lot of deep thought to figure out. You just, okay, this is a metaphor. What's the metaphor about? And then, then right away you get the actual meaning of what they're saying to you. Mm -hmm. So that's a skill you can develop just by paying attention to metaphor rather than just letting it go because of course on a conscious level what the woman was saying is that my mother really loved me and she did everything but that's what she was saying consciously but it's the unconscious meaning that really you have to reflect to people mm -hmm. and in this case all you have to do is look at the metaphor so if you just have an ear and somebody's using a metaphor look at the actual meaning of it rather than the intended meaning of it. And that's going to tell you what's really going on in their minds. Mm -hmm. The literal meaning. The, the actual meaning, yeah. So if I can think about all you said so far, um, being present with people, really listening and paying attention to cues, um, mirroring and reflecting back what people are saying. Are there... Um, tell us about the compassion. Well... So, compassion exists on a number of different levels, um, but uh, the essence of it is that you really are there f to, to support the healing of that person, uh, support the process of that person becoming whole, or, or recognizing their wholeness, which is what healing actually means. And so, um, that means 
no judgment. I mean, I was talking to somebody yesterday whose therapist is forever telling her, well, if you're going to be that way, I'm not going to see you. And, and, and he will actually explode sometimes in very angry tones. Well, he's got an issue. The issue is not with the client. The issue is with himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, because he gets, if he gets triggered, he could compassionately ask himself, okay, what is, it, what is being triggered in me? Or he can be comp- compassionately asking, why would that person say that or, 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 or behave that way? But to move to judgment and move to aggression mm-hmm. is not compassionate. So, compassion simply means a willingness to accept the other person exactly as they are, and with a view to promoting their healing. Now, I can give you a a more nuanced five-level definition of compassion, but I'm not going to do that here. Uh, I'll do that when I teach the course. Mm -hmm. But, so compassion exists on different levels, but that's the basis of it. And and so, uh, it, it really means that presence with acceptance and without judgment and with an intention to promote healing. Mm-hmm. And I, I know from listening a little bit to um, a video that you did that you also talked about fierce compassion, mm-hmm. that sometimes um, it can be difficult to hear, to hear um, or to have reflected back something that we might not want to face. Mm-hmm. So, can you tell us a little bit about when it's important, that, um, what compassion looks like in the different forms? You know, uh, Ram Das, who's a very well-known teacher, he, he talks about fierce grace, and he had a stroke about twenty years ago now. Mm-hmm. And just yesterday, I was talking to somebody who's close to him. And they were saying that after the stroke, Ramdas became the person he always talked about before the stroke. <laughs> In other words, the stroke actually taught him to be more himself mm-hmm. than when his body was functioning totally well. And he called that fierce grace, mm-hmm. where something happens that may occasion pain at the moment, but actually promotes your healing and your wholeness and your, and, your, and, your, and your development. So fierce compassion means, it doesn't mean that you are there to make the other person feel better. You're not there to make them feel better. You're there to, to quote somebody else, you're there not to make them feel better, but to make them better at feeling. And, and that means dealing with whatever's there. And, and that means, in this case, fierce compassion means that you're not afraid of the pain that might come up for the person when they're facing the truth. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that in a confrontational sense. But the fact is, the reason that all of us have problems is because we haven't looked at and dealt with the pain that we carry. So if I'm going to be a clear mirror, and if you look into that mirror that I'm holding up for you, you're going to see your pain. And you're going to feel your pain. Well, I have to be okay with you feeling pain. I can't be there to protect you from pain. 
I'm not there so that when you leave my office or the session with me, you feel better. I, if you do, that's great. And I think there's something about the truth that actually does make me feel better, people feel better. But that's a secondary uh, outcome. The primary outcome is that people are, in, are helped to recognize the truth about themselves, which gives them much more freedom in their lives. And to what extent do you have to be comfortable or f good at facing or witnessing your own pain to be able to be in the presence of someone else facing their own pain? Well, see, that's the whole problem with a lot of um, medicine and a lot of psychiatry and a lot of um, therapy as well, is that the practitioners haven't dealt with their own pain yet. Therefore, they get very uncomfortable with the pain of others and they want to manage the other person's pain rather than to uh, allow the truth of that pain to guide the, uh, the person's path. Mm -hmm. So it's all about symptom control and, 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 and uh, making people feel better. Uh, now, that comes from a good intention, but it's not a helpful one. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I really do think that, so when people come to these seminars, uh, very often they, they come believing, they, I'm told this all the time, that I thought I was coming here to learn a method or to learn about mm, trauma or learn about some didactic, uh, matter, but really what I did is I learned a lot about myself. And, and then I'm told that because of that, I'm so much more able to be present with my patients mm -hmm. and that the work has become much more effective um, as much because of what I've learned about myself as, it, as because of the method that, that you taught. So the method is really helping people to do the work that they need to do so that they can be present with other people and be with them as they do their own. Interview. Yeah, and the inquiry is to see what is exactly that's in our way of being present with people. Mm -hmm. You know, when I look at my unsuccessful interactions with people, when I was wanting to be a helper, it, there was something in me that was in the way. And, and... What do you mean there was something in you that was in the way? Well, uh, I can think of one example at a retreat that I led where there was somebody there with a, a neurological condition which I knew was based on repressed emotion. But I was so intent on teaching that person this insight, uh, I was so attached to the getting this across that I wasn't really paying attention to what was that person experiencing with me. At, what was that person experiencing with me at that moment? Mm -hmm. So what was in the way was my own ego, mm -hmm. or or my own uh, attachment to an idea, or my own attachment to being right. Mm -hmm. I um, or to put it more broadly, if I was that insistent and compulsive about helping her face her pain. It's because there's something in me that I, some pain in me that I hadn't faced yet. Mm -hmm. So that's so that's what's in the way internally. So uh, that's what I meant earlier when I said that it's a matter of constant attention to one's own process in interaction with the other. And I imagine that process is not only valuable in therapeutic settings and professional settings, but immensely in in 
all of life and how we relate to life? Mm, I wouldn't say that. And the reason I wouldn't say it is because my family hates it when I start <laughs> putting on my therapeutic hat in my relationship with them, you know? Mm-hmm. They, they didn't ask me to be their th- My friends don't ask me to be their therapist. Mm-hmm. My family doesn't ask me to be their therapist. They want me to be me. They want me to be their father or the spouse or the friend, mm-hmm. you know? So there's a bit of a temptation that I've succumbed to at times, more than at times. To, so compassionate listening is always a good idea, mm-hmm. but compassionate inquiry is not always a good idea. <laughs> well, that's a really good distinction to know. Yeah. That, you know, uh, there's a consent involved, that people consent mm-hmm. to wanting to ask those questions and be with someone who's going to Absolutely. And, and that's important even in the midst of the process so that if I'm going to take it a step further, I will usually ask for permission. Mm-hmm. Or I'll say in the beginning, as soon as it gets uncomfortable for you, will you please let me know? Mm-hmm. You know, so that the consent doesn't only have to be there in the beginning, it has to continue to be granted. Mm-hmm. And th- this is a game where it's important to pay attention to the cues that you're getting from the other. You know, as we, as we bring this interview to a close, in all your years of practice, what is the essential thing that you hope your work will inspire as people listen to you and move forward in their own work? It's that there's a reason for everything, and that every human behavior, every human thought, um, every human emotion, every human reaction, doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside, um, reflects a desire to be loved or to love. And as Marshall Rosenberg, who teaches nonviolent communication, said, very often we make these communications, uh, he calls it the tragic communication of a need. Mm-hmm. So that it doesn't matter how people behave or speak, underneath it, there's some basic human need that human need was at some point frustrated in early development and that person has been all their lives trying to have that need met. doesn't matter how they behaved. Even if they behaved in the most um, aggressive and, 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 and inhuman mm-hmm. and obnoxious fashion, um, there's always a reason for it. So that means when somebody comes for help, when somebody actually comes for help, then uh, you have to be able to see that need and that, and that real human being underneath the words and underneath the behavior. Mm-hmm. In other words, you have to see the person more clearly than they see themselves. That's, and, and then, not so that you can deliver your opinion to them and have them accept it, but so that you can mirror back to them their true selves. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a tall order and a lifelong process. And uh, there's more questions that I have. I wish I could keep going, but it's really been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to In Conversation, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970.